Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name is John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired Baltimore police sergeant. In the Law Enforcement Today radio show, we are joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, their families, and the community. We'll also be discussing issues in the news from the perspective of those in law enforcement. Check out our daily articles on our website, lawenforcementtoday.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to like and follow us on Facebook. Search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. He's a retired detective from the NYPD. He's also an author, a poet. He's written many books, one of which is known as Shot to Pieces. He's an expert in investigating violent crime and homicides. He's here to talk about that and so much more. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725 online at helpforourheroes.com. The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those that suffer from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Their program features first responders and veterans helping first responders and veterans. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. Calling us from Long Island, New York. Retired NYPD Detective Michael O'Keefe on the Law Enforcement Today show. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jay. It's a pleasure to have you. We've had a couple outstanding guests on from NYPD. Uh, Some colorful stories, some colorful people. Uh, And I get a a hint that you are one of them. Doing part, number one, you're an author. I I went to your website, and I believe it says you're author, poet, and cop. Is that what it says? Uh, That's correct. Author, poet, detective. Well, for people looking on the outside who don't know police, who only go by the Hollywood stereotype that they put out there they would think that that is odd and the reality is it's not it's well it might it might not be odd but it is fairly unique i mean i put it on my business card and people uh do double takes all the time i think i think the only thing that's really really maybe unique about it's poet now if you start like quoting poetry to me i might i might freak out a little bit (laughs) no no dylan thomas today okay good we're going to talk about your book before we get into details of our conversation. Your primary novel, and it's a, it's a novel, it's called Shot to Pieces. Tell us about that. Yeah, Shot to Pieces is my first novel. It was the, uh, after I was disabled in 2010 and had to retire, spent about two or three years threatening to write a book, and my wife finally bought me a laptop, threw it at me, and said, write the thing. Um, <laughs> And Shot to Pieces is largely autobiographical. It uh, kind of profiles my career. But it's a much larger story. It tells uh, 
an emotional story about a detective who's severely challenged by his upbringing and uh, misfortune that he encounters in life. And every time he seems like he's got uh, happiness within his grasp, he goes and sabotages it, which is not uncommon for no, a lot of cops. No, it's, it's not. We, you and I have known guys. I always say this half-jokingly. Yeah. There were there were guys I worked with in Baltimore. They came from Ohio or somewhere else because they were recruiting from everywhere. And they were like altar boys. They were so squared away, so happily married. And then three years later, they're divorced and are living in a basement with a stripper. You're like, what the heck happened to you? <laughs> Yeah, well, fortunately, it didn't get to that extreme for me. But basically, I wrote my own story. Uh, I kind of made it a novel because I didn't want to be constrained by uh, anything as mundane as the truth. Uh, right. I'm a big believer, as most Irishmen are. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Exactly. So consequently, I by changing the names and you know just incremental things, I was able to add drama where I felt like that I thought moved the story along. Um, but for the most part, all the police work in the book is, is genuine. It's it's all stuff I did. Um, I worked with some amazing cops. And I ended up retiring as a first-grade detective, which is a very rare and very uh, prestigious rank. I would, uh, I mean, I tell everyone I speak to, I'd still be catching murders in Brooklyn if, uh, if I hadn't gotten hurt. But um, back to Shot to Pieces, it... Uh, Profiles uh, one of my murder investigations. It was a very good, uh, very good case. Very involved. Uh, it was basically a gang street assassination, and I was able to roll up uh, an entire group from the Latin Kings uh, behind that murder. My main character, Patty Durr, is based largely upon me. Um, well, I noticed a very heavy influence of the Irish Catholic in, in his name. And by the way. For those listening, I'm up Irish Catholic. My my grandparents immigrated from County Cavan, and I'm applying right as we speak for dual citizenship for become a, a citizen of Ireland and America. So it's a very near and dear to my heart. Right, right. Well, but uh, Patty and my upbringing are basically the same. Um, the backstory is very similar, uh, with the exception. Uh, I turned his father into a junkie, which my father was, and he was just an alcoholic. Um, which, all, by the way, is quite common. Uh, and that and in our ancestry yeah that's seems to be a curse of the irish well, we, we, that, that's a joke the joke used to be mm. why did god invent whiskey and it was to keep the irish from ruling the world and that was the standing <laughs> joke we always said in our family the difference between the irish wedding and irish funeral was one less drunk this is true yeah and i don't mean that as, as a negative i'm not saying to be mean and, and be honest with you michael if someone said to me i might get fighting mad at him but if they're relative, then we just laugh and laugh and laugh because we yeah. know what we're talking about. It's not mean-spirited. It's right. just the truth. Yeah. We're contentious people. We're also uh, we're philosophical people. We're uh, melancholy people. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the reason why we make great storytellers. That might be it. And I, and I think a lot of the poverty that the Irish endured when they first immigrated to the United States uh, – in the 1700s and then through the potato famine era years uh, uh, and they started becoming prominent in the uh, NYPD and FDMY and of course throughout the United States and law enforcement in particular uh, the Irish heritage uh, is a big part so when I think of NYPD I think of Irish Americans and it's it's such good police and they have been for a very very long time yeah, yeah. well it's uh, obviously being from a later era than uh than the potato famine. Uh, my experience on the job is uh, 
most of the European ethnicities are very well represented in the NYPD. A lot of uh, I work with a lot of great Italian cops, uh, Polish cops. Uh, I was I'm actually a member of mo- most of the ethnic societies. And that's something I actually kind of miss. Uh, I'm down in Florida now, and we don't seem to have that the same degree as we had uh, up north. And I kind of miss the ethnic neighborhoods, and I miss going to the Polish neighborhoods at Easter time and getting lamb. I miss a lot of things, and I enjoyed the—I still do. I enjoy the ethnicity and the heritage that these different groups bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Brooklyn, and it was, uh, I mean, we were all— but edged against each other. Uh, so, you know, we were familiar with each other, and then the police department is really an extension of of, uh, of those old city neighborhoods. And uh, more recently, you've had your, your Latin influx. Uh, and NYPD's gotten very Dominican, uh, which is cool. It's very helpful to be able to speak Spanish. Absolutely. Yeah, and... Um, it's probably the most integrated society you're ever going to walk. Walk into any police station house in the city of New York now, and it is probably the most integrated environment you'll ever walk into. That's one of the things that we joke about uh, back in 1980 when I was a rookie. And mm-hmm. we had Muslims, we had uh, East Indians, we had Jews, we had gays we had lesbians we had every and no one cared yeah we gave each other a hard time we teased each other that was part of the camaraderie he had all we cared about was if i needed help i wasn't a battle if the, all you could do if you were smallest female just grab a hand uh, of, of the bad guy that's all we cared about do yeah. your job get and, on the radio and it had been that way forever. give me some more backup yeah it was no one cared that you were different it, yeah, it was yeah. and still we hear about it in the news all the time that there is ethnic and racial problems and uh, that people walk around viewing each other differently. I can tell you, honestly, my experience in police work was not that way. And I suspect the same for you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not within the department. There were basically two types of cops. We were all the same, but there were two types. There were those that had their head in the game and were going to do the job. And then there were the others that were kind of stealing their paycheck and you stayed away from them. Yeah. Exactly. And some of them started off with a head in the game, and then towards the end of their career, they're like, eh, I'm done. And my experience with most, most burnout cases, they were going to burn out anyway. Absolutely. They before, really weren't meant to be cops. Before we go to break, because there's so much we're going to talk about, I want people to get information about where they can get your book, get more information, yada, yada, Yeah, yada, the yada. easiest way to get my book is to uh, go on my website, michaelokeefeauthor.com. And uh, you'll scroll down, you'll see all three books there, and there is a single link to my author page on Amazon, and all three books are available there. Now, you got Shot to Pieces is your first novel. What are the other two? Uh, the second book that I released is actually, uh, it's a short novella. It's called uh, Not Buried Deep Enough. It's a coming-of-age story, 1980s Bushwick, Brooklyn. Also fairly autobiographical. And the third book I just released is uh, a short story collection called uh, 13 Stories, fractured, twisted, and put away wet. And uh, those are basically short stories that I had either published or won contests with. And uh, they made a nice collection, so I put them together and put them out while I'm uh, getting ready to publish the prequel to Shot to Pieces, which is going to be called A Reckoning in Brooklyn. And you get more details on his website. It's michaelokeefeauthor.com. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Finally, our heroes have access to a world-class program for PTSD, anxiety, depression, and more. 
The Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center provides a comprehensive range of treatments for substance abuse, addiction, co-occurring mental health disorders, and PTSD. Plus, they offer complete treatment for mental health issues for those without substance abuse problems. In addition to multiple rehabilitation and holistic treatments for all those suffering from substance abuse problems, the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformation Treatment Center is a nationally acclaimed veterans and first responders treatment program where law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, and all first responders receive the separate and highly specialized treatment they need. Got questions? They have the answers at the Help for Our Heroes program at Transformations Treatment Center. Call 888-991-9725. 888-991-9725. That's 888-991-9725. Online at helpforourheroes.com. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. Return our conversation with Michael O'Keefe, retired detective first grade from NYPD, also an author. His website is michaelokeefeauthor.com. One of the things we were talking about before break, and we're going to talk about your law enforcement career. Uh, we'll talk more about the book later on. And I'm not sure how to describe this. I took my first trip to Ireland uh, and saw where my, my grandparents are from and other places just a little over a year ago. And something about me changed inside. And when I get around people who are of the same ethnic background as me, there's something that I connect with them in a way that I don't with other people. Now, if you take that and you say, okay, now you got an Irish Catholic cop, boom, it's, it's dead on immediately. It's like we've known each other forever. <laughs> that seems that way, yeah. It does. It's it, we came from totally different agencies, only you know, about four or five hours of, apart, but experienced a lot of the same things uh, in two different cities. Uh, how long was your career from start to finish? Uh, Twenty four and a half years. That's a long time to do to, as you say, be your, your head in the game in a uh, high call area. What kind of investigations were you doing? Uh, by the by, the end of my career, pretty much all of my time in the detective bureau, which was most of my career, I uh, investigated primarily homicides and shootings. Homicides are one thing. I found them to be not the most difficult cases to work because a lot of times it was it was either easy to solve, there was a, a suspect you could figure out who it was, and whether you could get the evidence or not was a story. There were a few red balls we called them where you have no idea who did it. Mm-hmm. But I found one of the hardest things to investigate for me personally was the stranger-on-stranger stranger homicides and stranger-on-stranger stranger rapes. Those were really difficult. Yeah, um, uh, they were. Uh, but my experience, particularly in the neighborhoods that I worked in, uh, most of the time, even when it was a stranger-on-stranger, stranger, maybe that was a robbery motivation. Right. Um a lot of times they were innocents that, that, that caught a stray bullet because these, uh, these guys can't shoot. The way to work those is just figure out who had beef and who had motive. And then just work backwards from there. And then you find your witnesses. And then it's a matter of motivating your witnesses to tell you the truth. And, uh, and that's where the old school police work really comes in. That's where the ability to talk to people and have people know you really pays off. Two things you need to do work an inner city homicide you got to be able to work a telephone 
and you got to wear your shoes out. What's the old saying? You don't solve cases from the office. You got to be on the street sometime talking to people. Oh yeah, yeah. You got you got to wear out some leather. So that's back to old school policing one hundred and one. And I'm sure that you were raised on that uh, as a rookie patrolman. <laughs> Long before that, when I was growing up in Bushwick and Ridgewood, the uh, the eight three and the one hundred four uh, cops knew me uh, very well. And I was uh, I was at the end of uh, some of the old school policing. <laughs> so you weren't always on the best behavior on the right side of the law as a kid. I was a kid that grew up in the city. You know, I was. Uh, I was. I mean, there were kids I grew up with who, who were arch criminals and ended up being arch criminals. But uh, you know, I ran around in the streets. I fought. You know, I got in trouble. Uh, but you know, most of the time, the cops, at least the old school cops, they knew who your parents were. <laughs> they give you a nice trimming on the street and a lecture, and then dime you out to your parents, so you got a second beat. Exactly. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> so it was firm love. If we, if the guy ran from me, we usually knew who they were and where they lived, and we'd be on our doorstep talking to their parents when he got home. Yeah, that, yeah. And so the, the days of chasing people, we didn't have to do a whole lot of that. If you were a really good post officer, you knew everybody by face. Mm-hmm. And that's something I think that's missing from. I don't think I don't think it's the case where you guys are, but in other parts of the United States, in my old department, it seems to be a, a throwback that's not done anymore. Where you have post officers that work a beat, it's the same three officers all the time, except when they're off, and people know them. Right. Well, New York has uh, has recently adopted, or or they started to go back to the old community policing program, which. It's fine. It gives the community uh, basically a liaison, a familiar face that they can reach out to the police for particular services. But uh, the problem with the NYPD is they keep going back and forth. Uh, They put all their eggs in one basket at a time. What you really need is an integrated approach. You obviously need the radio cars out there to respond to the jobs because there's a lot of work and uh, not as much as there used to be. Crime is, is... Way down compared to the 70s and 80s. Well, they released the crime stats for the previous year, and shootings, non-fatal shootings, are up 7%. That's an enormous amount of shootings. And it's uh, it's a pretty much it's a harbinger, harbinger of uh, bad times to come. And the commissioner himself, when he released these statistics, said, our successes to this day are not promised to tomorrow. And it was his... I think polite way of saying that bad times are ahead. Yeah. The present mayor in New York is an imbecile, and uh, unfortunately, we, we were stuck with him for eight years of bad policy with respect to policing, and uh, it's starting to bear fruit. And unfortunately, the that fruit are uh, people uh, with gunshot wounds, and some of them lose their lives, and others are dramatically changed for the rest of their lives, and so are their families. Especially yeah. when you said, like, yeah. it's the innocent that's clipped uh, by accident, and they did nothing; they weren't in the game. Yeah, yeah, those um, those are horrors. I mean, I, I had a four-year-old girl that uh, caught a bullet in the eye. Uh, it was it was that was one of the toughest cases I ever worked. I've always uh, found it very difficult when involved very young children, whether it be at the hands of their parents, a family member, or a stranger. Didn't matter. Yeah, well, I mean, as cops, we kind of have a protective instinct already. So now you see someone who really needed protecting, and, and you warrant it's almost you get a guilt complex because you weren't there when they really needed you. You have to put the pieces back together. Michael, now. you're killing me. You're bringing some, some, some old memories, which we're, we're going to go on to different subjects. Uh, <laughs> you said earlier you, you grew up on the streets, you grew up in, in New York, and, and you were a street kid. You got into your fair share of scrapes and uh, weren't exactly a choir boy, so to speak. 
there's no, that was my brother. <laughs> no, did something come along in your interactions with the old school police that said, hey, I'll, maybe I'll want to do this job. Maybe I want to change my ways. Uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of the good kids from my neighborhood, we became cops, we became firemen. Um, some guys became teachers. Uh, you had all the construction trades. And then you had the other guys who were uh, straight out gangsters. Ended up uh, in the trunk of that car at the long-term lot of Kennedy Airport. But we were a neighborhood. We were a working-class neighborhood, you know, lower middle class. Uh, and civil service was a natural stepping stone. It, it, it was a direction you would go. I particularly like cops. I mean, I got a kick out of them. I thought they were funny. Uh, I thought they were smart in like an animal cunning sort of way and uh and i enjoyed their company you know when they weren't mad at me and uh i liked the idea of helping people i never liked bullies at me either to this day i, I still have a and, difficult time and with and, and and this this was like a real world entry into exacting some sort of justice and to protect people, really, on, on a ground level. Um, you really do get to impact people's lives as a police officer. You can't save everybody, but you can help people that you do come in contact who are willing to accept your help. And uh, it looked attractive to me, because I knew I didn't want to, I mean, you know, what was I going to do with an English degree, coach football and, and teach? Right. I don't like kids. Yeah. Which isn't really true. I'm a football coach now, but uh, it's not something I wanted to do. I, I couldn't see myself for the next four years, you know, working in a classroom or, uh, or for that matter, construction. I mean, I can't stand the winters. Yeah, no, up there especially. We're taking a short break. We are talking with retired NYPD detective Michael O'Keefe, uh, also an author. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. We're taking a short break. We'll be right back. For the most professional, complete security and protection services that uses only the most highly trained off-duty police, contact Operational Police Protective Services. Every business, school, and location where groups of people gather can also benefit from a complete, thorough, and in-depth protection and security survey. Contact Operational Police Protective Services. They can accommodate assignments throughout the East Coast. For more information, call 443-790-2511 or visit OPPSProtection.com. That's OPPSProtection.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today radio show is brought to you in part by Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. Everyone's welcome at the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page, where you'll find fun, informative, and enjoyable posts daily. Purebred, mixed breeds, rescues, we love them all. Be sure to like the Pet Rescue Life Facebook page. When you have a chance, be sure to go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, and download our free mobile app. We have a version for your Android and iPhone devices. It's 100% free. Get it at lawenforcementtoday.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Joining us on the phone, calling from Long Island, New York, retired NYPD detective Michael O'Keefe. Michael is also an author. Uh, get more details about him and his three books online, his website, michaelokeefeauthor.com. You did 24 and a half years on the NYPD. That's correct. And you made mention that your career was ended due to injuries because 24 and a half, you're like almost there. 
right. some agencies back at that time frame, maybe been twenty years. Well, uh, no, ma- maximum full full service retirement is twenty years in the NYPD, okay. or it was anyway from my uh, you know pension tier. Uh, but to twenty four and a half, basically, most guys don't stay twenty four and a half years. That's a that's a, detectives often do if they got a good spot. But I would never have left. I, I loved what I was doing. They would have gonna. I was gonna be one of those guys that carried out on a shield on his sixty third birthday. Gotcha. So, so what happened? It, you know what? It, it's basically twenty years of uh, twenty years of treating my body like a torpedo. Uh, when you're younger, all of these broken bones they mend. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, you're forty, and arthritis moves in and say, "Hi, I'm going to be uh, living with you for the rest of your life, and it's going to suck." <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, you know, I had a had a couple of surgeries, and then finally, uh, I was on a, at a detail at the UN in uniform. I almost got hit by a car that came off the drive too fast. I jumped out of the way. My knee buckled, and I wouldn't unlock. Um, basically, the, the surgeons had to break the adhesions just to get my leg to flex again. So I have some knee surgeries, and the doctor goes in. He thinks it's just going to be a clean out, and you know, back to duty, and. Uh, he says, I, I can't recommend you for duty ever again. Those knees are shot. You need replacements. And you were I, in your 40s. You you were not an yeah, old man. Yeah, I was 45 at the time. Uh, and um, I tried to fake out the uh, police doctor. I, uh, <laughs> I was hoping he hadn't read my surgery notes. Uh, I told him, I feel great. Put me back to full duty. He says, are you out of your mind? You're going up to file for retirement or I'm putting you in. And um, a year later, I was uh, I was off the job uh, on disability. It's amazing. I I'm thinking of, you are one of several NYPD that I've interviewed on the Law Enforcement Show. A couple of ones, Michael Burke. Uh, his career was ended due to injuries similar to yours. Another one's Ralph Friedman, a different era from you. Uh, yeah. And he was T-boned in a bad car accident, mo- broke multiple bones, and all of them said the same thing. They loved what you were doing, but they weren't ready for it to end when it ended. It was over. Yeah, yeah. You go one day and, being and a police. It's almost a postpartum depression. It is. It is dep- was depressing for me because I, that's all I knew at that point. And those right. guys were all I knew. And that was a big part of how I kept my mind together was by hanging out, going to work, busting chops, playing with each other, catching bad guys, as we said, all that stuff. And then when your career's over, you're at home by yourself and like, what do I do now? Well, I found things to do, and I, and I stayed in touch basically with the with with the guys. Uh, still a member of the Honor Legion. I uh, still go to uh, a lot of events. Uh, you know, the police organizations run. Uh, I even occasionally get a phone call uh, for advice from uh, guys who I guess were young detectives when uh, when I was first. Uh, you know, when I was leaving the job. Um, so it's nice. And then the other thing is because I'm writing contemporary police novels, and 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 the job changes at least procedurally and technologically so fast you have to stay in touch with people to, to stay spun up right on you know how things are done when you were a rookie how, what year was that 1986 okay so you were kind of same era uh when i always say in 1980 or 1981 we were issued a soft body armor front panel only you stop at 38 and less Nothing higher than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, a balsa wood nightstick, which you all replaced with a big heavy-duty one, like a yep. table leg. And a 38 revolver, and we also had mace that only worked on innocent bystanders and police. It didn't work on, on you know, crazy I found people. it only worked on police. That's all it ever did. And yeah. the worst thing you could ever do is someone, some rookie come out with a mace and go, no, 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 not that, anything yeah. but that. 
The first thing I used to do when I would get the mace from the range when they replace it every six months is I would empty it. Because <laughs> it was worthless, right? Yeah, and I wouldn't even put it on my, uh, and I wasn't in uniform that long, but I wouldn't even put it on my uniform gun belt and would only go get it out of my locker when uh, the sergeant did inspection and he was checking for mace. He was like, right. where's your mace? Oh, I must have left it up in my locker. I'll go get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I remember those days very, very well. Mm-hmm. You retired, you were in your 40s. That's not old by any stretch, the imagination. But for policing in, in a, a high crime area, 40 years old is 40 to 45 physically for many of us is ancient. Uh, yeah, I, you know what? I don't, I don't know. I, I think physically, if my, if my legs hadn't uh, gone to I think I would have been fine. To handle it, because you got to remember, I'm doing detective work. I'm, right. uh, I'm approaching people and speaking to people because I want to speak to them. So I'm pretty much prepared for who I'm talking to, and I was in good shape, other than the than the than the rotting bones. You know, I was uh, I was a gym guy. I was an athlete. So you know, at 45, I, I well, there wasn't anybody I would back down from. No, you know, whether or not that's uh, sensible, it's, you know, that's someone else's decision. Uh, but that's the way it was. Um, interestingly enough, since I retired, I was able to actually get the surgeries I needed. I had my hip replaced. I had my knees cleaned out. I probably need two knees. But for now, I'm feeling great. Physically, you're great. How's your head? I'm insane as ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It'll do that to you. Yeah, yeah. No, but it's... I think I was a little off anyway. Uh, you know, I was always a creative guy. With respect to thinking outside the box, I never owned the box. So, you know, I would take uh, unique paths to solutions. But I got things done. I was I was what was referred to as a go-to guy. You know, when the sky was falling uh, and they needed somebody to make it stop, bosses would come out of the office and look who was in the squad room, and it would be my case. So, it, you know... I think being a different kind of thinker uh, worked to my advantage. And certainly we had to have that. I, there was a time where I wanted everybody to be a go-getter like me, uh, a brawler or whatever it took to get the job done. And I didn't realize until much later on that we needed to have a balance. We needed to have uh, men and women who are good report takers. We needed other, we, everybody couldn't be like me. It, right. it would be a nightmare if everybody was. <laughs> and for a sergeant to have to deal with a squad of guys just like me, I don't know how they did it. Right. The poor yeah, guys, no, I'm sure, gave him gray hair. Uh, and the way that I ended up in plain clothes, my partner and I, uh, we were uh, we were doing midnights up in Washington Heights, and uh, we were grabbing two guns a night. Probably the deadliest uh, precinct uh, in the history of the police department, uh, the 34th precinct back in the uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. And what it was is we were constantly making arrests and having to go downtown. The system was so backlogged that you would invariably make 13 hours overtime on each arrest and then be back in your seat for the, for, for the midnight that night, and then we'd do it again. And basically, the bosses looked at them and said, we can't afford it. Yeah, These guys are costing us too much money. So they put us in anti-crime because then they changed our tour to 4 to 12, and they cut our overtime in half. So it's a cost-saving me- uh, measure for them. Yeah, and it was better for us because in plain clothes, it's all we did was sling guns. Yeah. For us, it was nonstop. How many do you think you would take off? I'm not talking about the mom and pop who didn't have a legally registered gun. We knew those people, and they weren't criminals. So we didn't we didn't mess with them. Oh, I never touched the, them. I only right. I only got street criminals. The street criminals with guns. How many do you think yeah. you took off the street a year? Uh, 
You know, it's difficult for me to say. Um, my anti-crime team was actually eight guys, and after the riots in Washington Heights, one of the chiefs actually had to do a report on uh, on our anti-crime team. And what he came up with is in the history of the anti-crime program and the NYPD, which is basically plainclothes violent crime interdiction, uh, my anti-crime team was the most prolific in the history of the police department. Between the eight of us, in a calendar year, we took 437 guns off the street in a year. And that would wow. be 1991. We're going to take a short break on that note. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today show, never fear. You can listen to them online. Just go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, or download our free app, also available on our website. That's lawenforcementtoday.com. See you there. If you've missed past episodes of the Law Enforcement Today show, never fear. You can listen to them online. Just go to our website, lawenforcementtoday.com, or download our free app, also available on our website. That's lawenforcementtoday.com. Back to our conversation with retired NYPD detective Michael O'Keefe, also an author. Uh, get more detail about him and his books, three books, at michaelokeefeauthor.com. First book, Shot to Pieces. Uh, Washington Heights seems to be a primary location for your career and a lot of your stories. So if it was like parts of Baltimore that I worked in, there's a mix of really good stuff, some funny stuff, and some horrific, violent, traumatic stuff. Was that the case for you? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, in the six years I was up there, I was uh, probably shot at a dozen times. It was also uh, the way that I, I actually shot my way into the detective bureau. Unfortunately, um, I had to take somebody's life, uh, dragged me into a hallway. I was trying to lock him up for a gun. And uh, I spent five minutes trying to fight that gun out of his hand. Uh, had it in my mouth twice. Before I finally, I had nothing left. I drew my own gun and uh, fired twice and ended the confrontation. He expired. But evidently, he was the patron saint of the Dominican drug cartel because uh, they rioted all summer. And uh, the media and the mayor threw me under the bus. Uh, very nearly indicted for murder. If uh, the drug cartel who put uh, witnesses up who actually weren't witnesses, it was later proven that not only were they not there, they couldn't have seen what they said they saw. But if they had been better liars, I would have uh, probably been convicted of murder. So you came pretty close. Yeah, yeah, uh, very close. And uh, the mayor at the time, David Dinkins, uh, in my opinion, the worst mayor in the history of New York, or at least in my lifetime, the worst uh, mayor in the history of New York. But then again, I have a personal bone to pick with him. Uh, he knew that I was innocent, even after the uh, evidence and the facts were presented to him by the uh, district attorney in New York County. Uh, he said the city won't stand for this. You indict this cop. Didn't care about the truth. The, the facts reveal that you're innocent. You did nothing wrong. Yeah, they, and actually, the way the district attorney explains it to me is, is I explained to him the impossibility of your guilt, and he didn't care. He wanted you indicted to placate the Dominican drug cartel, who were instrumental in getting him elected in the first place. This is the dark side of politics. And this is part of the reason why I don't get into political conversations, mm. particularly partisan ones, because I've had my own experiences. And mm. uh, so much of what happens in politics nowadays, is, and they'll say a certain faction of the community is, is upset about it. But what's the driving factor behind it is an organized criminal group. Mm. 
that's that's pushing the buttons to make this happen. Well, the, the biggest culprit, however, at the time was the media. And without benefit of knowing who anybody was or vetting anybody that they spoke to, they stuck a microphone in front of anybody's face who wanted to spew the most outlandish allegations about myself and my anti-crime team. And they basically depicted us as land pirates and uh, abusers and uh, thieves and, uh, and without a scintilla of evidence. And uh, the newspapers all picked up on this. And for the better part of the summer of 1992, I was public enemy number one. And it was only after the grand jury uh, and Robert Morgenthau read the grand jury report, an unprecedented 45-page report on all the evidence and testimony, that the story turned around. How badly did that whole incident affect you? It made me angry. Uh, it probably uh, it changed. I stopped working for the New York City Police Department at that point. Now I worked for myself and my family. And I was going to do the right thing, and I didn't care about the repercussions. And I didn't, you know, you could put as many procedures as you wanted in my way. I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to get it done. And if you're not happy with it, then do what you have to do. I really didn't care at that point. But the flip side of that is Mayor Dinkins was so unhappy with the grand jury uh, outcome and had felt that we made him look so bad politically in a re-election year that he walked a bogus investigation for civil rights offenses across the street to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So I had the U.S. Attorney trying to lock me and my anti-crime team up for civil rights offenses for doing our job under the theory that that many guns, nobody's that good. Their argument was we had to be violating civil rights to get that many firearms off of people. So much of your story mirrors a lot of what I went through and my partners. We got dragged into civil federal lawsuits. I remember mm-hmm. being in federal court and all the charges were were. Uh, dismissed at the end. There was no foundation to them, but it didn't make it any easier to go through this. I went through uh, homicide investigations where I was looked at and scrutinized as a suspect for many years, and it was one of the worst times of my life, and one of the worst experiences of my life in law enforcement was being called to a grand jury where I was a possible suspect. (laughs) Well, actually, the subpoena, the first subpoena for my grand jury in 1992 was entitled the people of the state of New York versus police officer Michael O'Keefe, and the charge was 125-25, which is New York State Penal Law Murder 2. We're going to have so to talk about that, that in the future. I got that and I and I'm like, wow, I'm in a world of hurt here. It, it, uh, well, and I was 20, 29 at the time, it, so, you know, I was a young man. I was uh, 29, 30 years old when I went through it. And, yeah, yeah. and nothing prepared me for for having to do that. And I, I don't want to get lost in the conversation because the, you and I could have a, a full-on two-episode on that alone. Yeah. Uh, so we'll definitely have you back in the future to talk yeah. about it. These incidents, all the violence, all the things you went through, and then the, the intense scrutiny, politically motivated scrutiny, quite often, many of us would say, it's not the bad guys in the street that really killed us yeah. emotionally, mentally. It was our own departments, our no, own No, you were brass. afraid of being eaten by your own. Oh, they were the worst sometimes. But, um, you know, on the flip side, I stuck around long enough and did well enough that by the end of my career, I was left to my own devices. They knew I was going to do my job. And pretty much they knew they didn't want to get in the way. Here's your case, young man. Uh, help us out here. So, And I was left to do what I knew how to do, which was, you know, investigation. So when you, you were, your career ended to these injuries, uh, you're home, and you said you, you were half-threatening to write a book, and, and your wife went and bought a uh, laptop for you and said, here, get, get busy. Yeah, write it. And it took me – I kind of had an idea of what I wanted to do with the book. I knew I wanted to make it more than just a police story. 
you know, I wanted it to be about the human thing, about the relationships. And, uh, and I also wanted to, uh, I was motivated to, to write coherently about what an officer goes through when he has to take another human life and, and, and the profound effects of post-traumatic stress. And people don't get it. People don't, you really couldn't know how horrible it is until you've had to go through it. And at the same time that I'm, uh, that I'm, I'm wanting to, to put this down on paper, to write it, to, to have people understand, to have that point of view. Black Lives Matter is coming out with this incredibly ridiculous false narrative that the police are actually out there looking to kill people of color. Right. It's bizarre. It's, it's antithetical to human nature. Right. And I hope that my examination of it in Shot to Pieces makes that point clearly enough uh, i think it does but uh will, will people listen to it if they read it and they get it will, will they will it open some eyes and go i never thought of it that way yeah i i i've had a lot of civilian readers that uh that didn't understand the trauma and 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 the lasting effect and the corollary effect of, of post-traumatic stress it affects everyone around you it affects your family i mean i almost murdered my wife uh, from a flashback nightmare when I tore the post off the bed uh, I, and almost killed her with it. You know, she had, a, had to throw pillows at me to wake me up. Uh, and I know so you, pretty I, frightening. I know you're laughing probably because you'd cry if you really had to talk about it emotionally. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I cried writing that part of the book. I actually cried while I was writing it. Because uh, I was, you're so I was right. in that place again. You're so right. I... I I don't know anybody that did a career in law enforcement that isn't dinged up some way or another. Some of us more than others. And uh, one of the things that we always say is that I'm damaged goods, but I'm okay with it now. I wasn't <laughs> always okay with it, but I am now. And when I meet people that are like me, that are damaged goods as well for the same reasons, I'm really okay with them. Right. I, maybe I get them more than they can explain themselves and vice versa, but... These things are clearly outlined in your book. We're running out of time uh, before we leave. Give the title of the book and where people get more information and what other projects you have coming up. Yeah, again, uh, the, the novel, uh, Shot to Pieces, is uh, available. Easiest way to get it is on my website, michaelokeefeauthor.com. Uh, there's a button right there that'll take you right to my Amazon author page, and all three of my novels will be available. Uh, presently, what, I, what I'm working on, I have a finished, uh, actually two finished manuscripts in the Patty Dar series. The first one is called The Reckoning in Brooklyn. It's a prequel. Uh, Patty appears in it as a 17-year-old, and, and we find out why he decides to be a cop. The next book is, uh, is a, a sequel, actually, to uh, Shot to Pieces, and it's called Burnt to a Crisp. And that's based on uh, a triple arson homicide that I caught when, uh, when I was working in Brooklyn. I'm also working on a uh, poetry collection that I'm probably going to put out myself on Amazon that will be available on Amazon. It's, the poetry is uh, not for the faint of heart. My poetry is decidedly dark. I kind of got the, that feeling. <laughs> Michael O'Keefe, thanks so much for coming along for today's show. We'll have you back again in the future. Uh, great pleasure, Jay. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. Yeah.